0: Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Baggage, Finding Freedom from the Weight We Carry. We're addressing some heavy things like depression, anxiety, trauma, addiction, and guilt in order to learn God's heart for those who hurt. Our prayer is that these sermons would help you and encourage you. Please feel free to reach out at hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Enjoy.
1: Good morning, church. All right, um, I will be reading the scripture this morning for you. Um, I will first read it in Swahili, and then I will read it in English right away. So the scripture this morning comes from Romans 3: 21 through 26. and it reads: "Lakini Sasa, Haki Mungu imedvirica, Pasipo Sheria. Inashudiwa na Torati na manabi ni haki ya Mungu iliyo kwa njia ya imani katika Yesu Kristo kwa wote waaminio. Maana kuna tufauti kwa sababu wote wamefanya dhambi na kupungukiwa na utukufu wa Mungu. Wanahesabiwa haki bure kwa neema yake kwa njia ya ukombozi ulio katika Yesu Kristo ambaye Mungu amekwisha kumweka awe upatanisho kwa njia ya imani katika damu yake ili aoneshe haki yake kwa sababu ya kuziachilia katika ustahimili wa Mungu dhambi zote zilizotanguliwa kufanywa apate kuonesha haki yake wakati huu ili awe mwenye haki na mwenyewe sabu haki aminiwe Yesu Now onto English uh, this is also, if you need a Bible, actually, um, we have some Bibles, so if you, if you need a Bible, um, we will be more than happy to have you take one, and it can be a gift from the church. Um, all right, so Romans 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 22, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. Good morning once again, and uh, thanks for being at Table Church today, and if this is your first time here, welcome. I hope that you feel right at home. We'd love to meet you out at the Welcome Center. We've got a little gift we'd love to give you as well. Hey, I want to tell you something quick. Last week here at Table Church, we had 115 people attend in person. 40 of them were children, okay? A third of our congregation right now is children. That's, that's quite a bit in case you don't know, uh, and so... Yeah, we are talking about ways that we can serve our kids better, and what we need right now, first of all, we, just, we need more volunteers to help, because look, it's like the, what I call the dead of summer here, like in ministry world, the summertime, that's like when things go to sleep, right? I'm a little worried about what the end of September is going to look like, if that's what we're talking about with kids in the summer. And so we need to prepare to be able to meet the needs of those kids Sooner than later. So, if you're willing to volunteer with kids, just let us know on your connection card. We're looking to start a whole, like, build out another nursery, like, have two nurseries. Um, So, yeah, we could use more help, more hands, and that would be wonderful. So, today we finish up our series called Baggage. We've been talking about some of the heavy things that we carry with us a lot. We've talked about things like depression, anxiety, trauma, addiction. And today we're going to talk about guilt. Now, it seems to me that, and this is a good thing, um, the things that we've talked about in this series so far, I think there's an opening in our culture to talk about that stuff, a willingness, an increasing willingness to admit that we struggle with some of those areas like depression or anxiety. But it seems to me that the opposite is happening when it comes to guilt, to really admitting when we've done something wrong. And, um, I wonder why that is. Now, there was a time where, you know, clergy, one of our main jobs, is like hearing confession of sin and stuff like that, which still is kind of the case in the Catholic Church, I think. Uh, but certainly in my line of work, it doesn't happen that often, not, at least not like it maybe did at one time in history. Why is this? Why is it that while we're more willing to face, and this is a good thing, but more willing to face the challenges and admit the challenges of struggling with depression, we're less willing to admit our guilt, I have a theory as to why this might be the case. Perhaps it's not that we feel less guilty. Perhaps it's that we're more afraid to admit it. See, I think that we live in a rather legalistic society. I'm not just talking about the church, although we do have that problem in the church sometimes. But I think society as a whole can be very legalistic. What I mean is that it can exact a heavy toll against people who transgress its moral norms and laws. One of you here today recently shared a video online of The Daily Show host, Trevor Noah. He was talking about the recording artist Lizzo. I never heard of Lizzo. Apparently she's a big deal. She's got a new song out, it's called Girls. (laughs) I don't know if you heard it yet. It's a banger. Actually, I listened to it and uh, look, it's full of ex- expletives and violent lyrics. The worst, it's not gonna be, up, when I worship, you're not gonna play it on your way out the door today, I promise. And it doesn't really have Pastor Phil's endorsement. Uh, not actually at all. Um, but you know, that, the thing that got Lizzo in trouble on Twitter wasn't that, it was the fact that she used the word spaz in her song. Spaz, in her mind, meant like to cut loose, have fun, party with your friends, that kind of thing. But actually, uh, what she found out was that people in other cultures say, no, spaz is a term that's actually used derogatorily towards people with disabilities. And so she started, you know, getting some flack on Twitter for that. um, And you know what she did? Lizzo, she learned about this. And she found out that the word actually means something different than the way she meant it. And so, you know what she didn't do? She didn't double down. She didn't try to defend herself. She didn't argue with people. You know what she did? She changed the song. She went and she changed the recording of the song. You go look it up on Spotify, that lyric is gone now. She just went and changed it. She didn't want to offend people. She didn't want to make people feel bad. Now, you'd think the controversy would end at that point, but it didn't. Some people, for some people it did, they dropped it at that time, but according to Trevor Noah, many people didn't. They just kept piling on her. They couldn't move past it. They continued to hold her responsible for using a word that she didn't even realize was wrong, even after she went back and changed it once she did. People would say, look, I don't care that you changed it. What matters is that you said it in the first place. There's no going back from that. Refusing to forgive her. Refusing to acknowledge that she basically did the very thing that we would hope anyone would do in that particular situation. But even for many people, that wasn't enough. Because for many people, nothing is enough. And so I wonder if the reason that we don't admit guilt today, that we don't admit that we actually did do something wrong, is be, it's not because we don't feel bad. It might be because we're scared to admit it, because we don't know what will happen. There's no means of atonement There's no means of forgiveness. It's simply today, be perfect, and as soon as you're not, it's game over. Listen, in our culture, we can't confess our guilt because there's no clear solution for it. Look, that's a lousy place to be. Most any religion in the world has a means of absolution for sin, atonement for sin, forgiveness for sin. But this cultural religion that I'm describing here does not. Our cultural religion worships at a temple that offers nothing but damnation for those who have transgressed the law. I'm not just pointing the finger outside of the church. I think we kind of invented this, you know? I think it's kind of started with us, maybe. Christians can be just as much this way as anybody. And so we have this kind of cultural religion that demands moral perfection. And as soon as you transgress the ever-changing norms, then it's game over for you. But listen, we have a totally different picture in the Bible. Now, some of us who are raised in the church might not realize this. We've been given the image of a God who's always mad at us, who's personally offended whenever we sin against him. That I don't think that's really what the New Testament wants to tell us about God. Rather, I think we find something different. I think we find a God who is actually acting in order to restore us to relationship, who's chasing us even though we've done wrong in order to bring us back into community, back into relationship with him. Listen, this is important. The key problem with sin is not moral offense, but the destruction of relationship. I'm not saying moral offense isn't a problem, but I'm saying that when you really understand what's going on, what you find is that the big problem about sin is that it disrupts our relationship with God. Not that there's some moral code that we've messed up and now we've got to get right before God's going to take us back. It's that we were once in unity with God. Our sin messed that up, and now God will stop at nothing to restore that once again. And think about it. Anytime you do something wrong, I mean, what happens? You destroy relationships. That's what sin does. So our, te- our text today, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is kind of a complex passage, but it's actually a very crucial one. I mean, it's kind of at the center of New Testament theology. It's very dense. Um, I mean forests have been leveled trying to interpret this passage. So we're going to take our best stab at it today. We're going to simplify it by uh, asking three questions that it answers for us. Three questions. Number one, what has been shown to us? Number two, how was it shown to us? And number three, why does it matter? If you're following along in your Bible today, grab a pen or a pencil. We're going to dig in deep into the text. I actually want to encourage you to even write in your text today. I'm going to give you a few things you can write in your Bible in order to help you some of the remember some of the things we learned. So question number one, what has been shown to us? Look at verse 21. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the answer to our first question seems a little obvious at first. What has been shown to us? Well, it says the righteousness of God has been made known. It's been revealed. But of course that raises another question. Well, what is God's righteousness. What does that mean? We usually define righteousness as morally flawless or something like that, right? A righteous person is somebody who doesn't swear, smoke, chew, or drink. Like that's what we think of righteousness as. It's this person or somebody who has this moral perfection, moral flawlessness about them. Listen, that's not what this word means. At least it's not all this word means. I wouldn't even say it's most of what this word means. Um, in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament, the, the Greek word that's translated righteous here, righteousness, it's simply the Greek word for justice. "Dikaiosune" is the word. It's the Greek word for justice. And in the Bible, justice is not simply about punishing criminals. It's not simply about balancing moral ledgers. Justice in the Bible is often about restoring someone to the community. Biblical justice is about restoring right relationships. Look, in the Bible, we don't just feed the poor in order to fill their stomachs. We feed the poor that they might once again become flourishing and healthy and whole members of the community. When the Bible over and over again tells us to do justice for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, it's not simply telling us to give them resources, it's telling us to bring them into the community and help them flourish as a part of God's people. That's what justice in the Bible, a holistic sense of justice in the Bible, is all about. And so we need to bring that to this verse. When Paul says in Romans 3.21 that God's righteousness has been revealed, it means that God's desire to fix our relationship with him has been revealed. God's heart to bring us back into community with him has been shown to us through Jesus. Look how far God is willing to go to bring us back into relationship with him. He's willing to go to the point of becoming a man, dying a servant's death on a cross. That's what was revealed to us. That's God's righteousness. It's not just that God's moral perfection has been revealed. Oh, wow, look how holy God is. Yeah, he is. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's showing us the lengths that God would go to bring us back into fellowship. That's his righteousness. I like uh, Michael Gorman. He's a New Testament scholar. I like his translation. He says, but now God's restorative justice has been made known. His restorative justice, his burning heart to bring all people back into flourishing in the community has been made known. And so if you have your Bible open right now, I want to encourage you, underline the word righteousness there. And in the margin or above it or below it or wherever you have room, write the words restorative justice. And so when you read that verse and when you read Romans, you'll see that and you'll remember that's what God's talking about when he says righteousness. And see how it starts to kind of shift your view away from like God is this vindictive cosmic police officer waiting for you to mess up and more to the father of the prodigal. Right? who is sitting, watching the horizon, waiting for his son to appear, and as soon as he does, he runs to him, he puts the, the coat on him, he puts the ring on his finger, he throws a party for him, he welcomes him back into his family. That's God's righteousness. That's been revealed. All right, that's the answer to the first question. What has been shown to us? God's restorative justice is righteousness. Number two, how has it been shown to us? Verse 25, It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That phrase there, sacrifice of atonement, is really important. It's a notoriously difficult thing to translate. In fact, if you compare different translations, there's all sorts of different ways of translating this one Greek word. Some will say propitiation. I think the ESV says propitiation. Sacrifice for sin. Some say mercy seat or seat of forgiveness or seat of mercy. Something like that. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to translate just one Greek word. It's the Greek word hillasterion and it comes from the Old Testament and that Greek word literally refers to the ark, the lid, sorry, the lid of the ark of the covenant. I know this is a kind of crazy sounding. It's talking about the lid to the ark of the covenant. Now the ark of the covenant is this box that Israel would carry around with it and inside of the box there's these holy relics and they believe that the manifest presence of God kind of went with this ark, this box and so they carry it everywhere that they went. The Greek word translated here, sacrifice of atonement, is referring to the lid of it. Now, what in the world does the cover of a box have to do with what Jesus did? Well, the lid, or also called the atonement cover, is important in three ways that we learn in the Old Testament. Number one, it is the place of God's holy presence. Look what Leviticus 16 says. It says, for I will appear in the cloud Over the atonement cover. I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. God appears on this lid. They called it the mercy seat. There's actually these two angels on it, and in between it, that's kind of where God's presence was seen to rest. So the lid of the atonement cover is God's holy presence. Number two, it's the place where God speaks. Number seven, Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him from. Watch it, above the atonement cover on the ark. There it is. And number three, it's the place where God cleanses people from sin. Leviticus 15, the priest shall slaughter the goat, take its blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, the lid of the ark, the hilasterium. So Paul, when he uses that word, he's saying a lot of stuff That's why our translations are so different. It's why it's so hard to translate. No one's going to say, well, lid of the ark, because you're like, what does that have to do with anything? We We don't have the context today now to know exactly why that mattered. And so the translators are trying to help us understand what it does by saying sacrifice of atonement, that kind of thing. And so Paul's talking about the lid of this ark. And what we can say now is that all the significance of that applies to Jesus. And so Jesus does three things. He does the three things that the ark does. Jesus is the place of God's presence. Jesus is the place where God speaks or God's word. Jesus' blood cleanses our sin. All of that is being said in just one word. And so if you're following along in your Bible, go ahead. I want you to circle or underline that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, in verse 25. And somewhere nearby, write these three things: put God's presence, God's word, God's cleansing. God presented Christ as his presence, his word, his means of cleansing. That's what we're talking about here. And so we have our answer to question number two. How was God's righteousness shown to us through Jesus' sacrifice? The desire that God has to bring us back into relationship with him, his righteousness was shown to us through the incredible sacrifice of Jesus that does all of those amazing things. All right, last question. Why does it matter? Maybe you've heard verse 23 before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why it matters. We're talking about guilt today. There's no fancy pants moves I can do with the Greek word for all. It just means all. Everybody, every one of us have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. This is why it matters. But I am, going to, I am going to ask you to mark your Bible a couple more times here. There's nothing better than a marked up Bible. A, a pristine Bible is a waste of space. Like some people are like, oh, I don't want to get it dirty. Come on. Get over it. You can buy a new one. So I want you to, I want you to circle or underline the words fall short. And I want you to write somewhere near it the word lack. Near fall short, write the word lack, L-A-C-K. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Why do I prefer this? Well, first of all, it's it's literally like the first uh, definition in the dictionary for the word, Uh, just lack. But also, remember, what we're learning here is that our problem isn't that we don't measure up to a moral standard it's not about, hey, we gotta, you know, we've fallen short of this moral standard. We've got to get ourselves back up here before God's going to accept us. I want to do what we can do to kind of rid that idea in our minds. Yes, God wants to make you holy, but guess what? It doesn't happen by you trying really hard. It happens by you being with God. That's where the transformation occurs. Get a little bit of God, you're going to want a whole lot more of God. Okay. And so when we say the word lack, what we're realizing is that the problem is that we don't have God. We need him. We lack God's glory. One more note over the word glory, somewhere near it. Put in the parentheses the word presence. Because that's what it is. The glory of God, when it falls, what it means is that God's pure, unadulterated presence is now in our midst. We lack God's presence. All have sinned, and the problem with that, not that God is a cosmic police officer watching us screw up, taking moral offense to the things that we do. The problem with that is that we don't have his presence anymore. And the whole Bible is the story of God chasing his people, trying to be with them over and over and over again. It's his righteousness. All have sinned and lack God's glorious presence. That's what we need. That's what God is bringing us back into. And so look, our culture offers no solution for guilt, but God does, himself. And so if you've done something in your life, and every time you think about it, you get embarrassed by yourself. You can't seem to let it go. Let me make a gentle suggestion. Is it possible that you've been discipled into the cultural religion And not into the gospel. Because one offers no solution for your guilt, but one does. And if we can't seem to get over it, maybe the people in your life have let it go, but you can't. Maybe you've not been fully discipled into the gospel yet. Because remember, our cultural religion says if you mess up bad enough, there's no coming back from that. You might say, well, Phil, you don't understand what I've done. But you know something? That's true. I might not understand what you've done. It might be pretty bad. I don't know. But you know what else? If the gospel can't cover your sin, then it's not a gospel worth believing. If the gospel can't work, even for the vilest sinner, then the cross is emptied of its power. Because if Jesus' blood can't do it all, then Jesus isn't God. There's nothing in between. And so if you carry guilt today, ask yourself that question. Which faith do you belong to? In the town I used to live in, I, I used to play a lot of golf before I had kids. I don't play much golf anymore. Um, I used to get up before work and go golfing, like early in the morning. And there was a, a short nine-hole, par 30 nine-hole course. You, I could play in an hour. And so i go and i play. Quick round before work is awesome. And, you know, you go at that time of day and you start seeing the regulars and you get to know some of the people that show up around the same time as you. And there's a couple guys that they met the same way, just met on the golf course, ended up starting kind of forming a friendship and they'd, they'd tee off together every day. And uh, they welcomed me into their little group. Now, one of them was a retired Lutheran minister coming up on 80 years old back then. And uh, the other guy, I don't remember the minister's name, but the other guy's name was Mike. He was, I don't know, probably in his 50s. And they had, a, they had a good friendship, and Mike would help the pastor find his ball, um, you know, because his eyes were failing and stuff like that. And, and they welcomed me into their, their group, and we made a little trio. And so we'd play together quite often in the mornings. And um, I remember one morning I came, and there was, there was my minister friend, but Mike wasn't there. And so we waited for a little while to see if he'd show up, but he didn't. You know, I had to get to work, so we teed off and we played our round. When we got back to the parking lot, there was a note on the Lutheran minister's windshield, under his windshield wiper. He picked it up, he looked at it, and it was a note from Mike, and scribbled there in angry letters. It said, you couldn't wait five minutes, it said. By the way, I'm pretty sure we waited at least five minutes. I never saw Mike again, but I did see my pastor friend, and I asked him, I said, so whatever happened with Mike, did you guys ever talk things through, patch it up? And he got choked up. He said, I did see him. And I, I said, sorry, I said, would you forgive me? You know what Mike said? He said, I never forgive. He'd been discipled. Mike had been discipled, but not into the gospel. Into some other, some other religion that's very common that teaches you to feel powerful, to feel in control, by not being a graceful person. And here's the irony. There's maybe no greater trick of the devil. Think about this for a second. So many people stay away from faith, stay away from church, stay away from Christ because of this image they have of God who's this vindictive police officer, arms crossed, toe tapping, waiting for them to mess up, always being judgmental, And and the irony is that that's not God In fact, it's it's 180 degrees wrong It's, It's got everything backwards But what that is, it is our culture It is the thing that people often take instead of God It's the greatest trick you could think of God is the opposite of all the things that people hate And that they embody the thing that they hate At the end of the clip I talked about earlier, Trevor Noah says, we live in a world where people can do a bad thing that they don't know is a bad thing and then we treat them as if they did know it is a bad thing. And I think that's true, but I would want to ask him and I wonder what his answer would be if he would have one or not. I'd want to say, so what about when people did know it's a bad thing and they did it anyway? Because that's really where we get down to it. And that's where we all are. That's the problem. This is why we all need the gospel. Our culture offers no clear solution for guilt, but God does. And so let me ask you a question. Are you carrying this weight of guilt? The Bible talks about sinning with a high hand. That's the phrase it uses for when, like, you're like, yeah, I know that's wrong, but I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. Sinning with a high hand. And you know, in the Bible, when when people sin, Often, they do something if they're repentant about it. Their repentance is not just a thing, well, sorry God, please forgive me, amen. It's not just a thing that happens in their mind. A lot of times they'll embody their repentance. Maybe they fast, maybe they put on sackcloth, maybe they repent in dust and ashes like Job says, like they would embody their repentance in one way or another. And I wonder if some of us here would benefit from that. I wonder if some of us here need to say, you know what, I can't seem to let the guilt of this thing go. Maybe the people around you have let it go. Maybe they haven't, I don't know. Whatever the case though, maybe you need to go off into the woods for a day with God. Maybe you need to fast for a couple days or something like that. Why? Simply to to help you understand that, that you are giving this to God. And when you come back from it, you know you're coming back into the open arms of the Father, into the grace of God, just like the prodigal son. So in this series, we've talked about depression, anxiety, trauma, addiction, and now guilt. I think we've probably covered just about everyone. And so let's not leave here without putting some bags down. Whether you're carrying the guilt for something in the past and it's time to let it go, it's time to be restored to community and relationship with God, Or, or, or whether you're carrying the weight of one of the other things that we've discussed, I want to invite you as we go to not leave without having done something about it. We've got some bricks up here. You'll see the suitcases and luggage. We've got a cross over here. And so as the band plays this next song, if that's you, if you're heavy today and you want to put something down, I want you to buy that action. Just come down here, grab a brick, and put it at the foot of the cross. And hopefully some of the things that we've talked about today, some of the things we've talked about the past weeks, can help you realize just what kind of freedom God offers. And remember this, when we come down front, it's not about saying, okay, I got this thing I'm carrying, I gotta clean myself up first, now God will accept me. It's about running to the fact that God has already done the work. It's not, I gotta clean myself up first, it's about running into your father's arms and saying, why would I hold this thing that's separating me from him in light of all that God has done? So come step back into relationship with God you're not coming to achieve a moral code. God does that in you as you run to him. You're coming back into God's arms. Let's pray. God, I, I think about the passage in Philippians 4 when we talked to the week on anxiety. That the, we cast our anxieties on you and the peace of Christ that surpasses understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, let that be true of us now. Lord, may we rejoice at the fact that Your righteousness has been revealed. The righteousness that demonstrates your aching heart to bring us back into communion and fellowship and relationship with you once again. And God, once we taste a little bit of you, we want a whole lot more. That's where we become holy. That's where we are made new. Lord, let us be people who chase after your presence with everything that we've got. In your name.